What can we really know about the early manuscripts of the New Testament? Find out on today's episode of A View from the Wall. Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor Joe Kerr with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View From The Wall. Welcome to A View From The Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs here today with co-host Joseph Kerr, and we have an important program for you today. Critics like to attack the New Testament, claiming we can't really know what it originally said. But the evidence stands against this accusation. Today, we are joined by one of the world's top experts on the New Testament, Dr. Craig Evans. Dr. Evans is the John Bisagno Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University. He's the author or editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 TV documentaries and news programs. Today, we'll talk about his newest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. Dr. Evans, welcome to A View from the Wall. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, we are honored to have you with us today. You've put forth quite a legacy of scholarship when it comes to Jesus and the early manuscripts of the New Testament. So we want to introduce people to your work and what you've done over the years. But as we begin, let's talk about the Bible as a book. Uh, Some people hearing this may not have a lot of background in ancient manuscripts. They may be thinking, if we want to know how accurate a Bible translation is, why not just compare it to the originals? But it's not necessarily that simple that we look back at one original text, is it? Give us kind of a big picture of what you work with with the New Testament manuscripts. Well, first of all, the Bible, you know, we love to call it a book, and that's what the word Bible means. It just means book. It's a library. And so we have 66 documents in it. We have 39 that are in the Old Testament, the older scripture, the scripture of ancient Israel, which Jesus and the church presupposed. And then we have the New Testament writings, 27 of them. And four of them are Gospels, and that's what my book is about, the uh, manuscripts for the Gospels. And you're quite right. We don't just have an original sitting there on the desk that we can look at. We have copies that have been made, copies of copies, and so on. And the originals long, long ago perished. Uh, You know, they'd be 2,000 years old. They would have been handled and probably deliberately destroyed, I think, by uh, the Roman government, which persecuted the new Christian movement. So anyway, we have copies of copies. And so the real question is, how accurate are the copies? After all, they're handwritten. You know, and if you've ever copied anything at length, and I think we all have done that, where you have a text uh, on the desk and you're looking at it, and then you look at the piece of paper you're copying or the keyboard as you type, and invariably your eye will go to the wrong place. You'll mistype something or miswrite something. And these are called scribal errors. And so a scribe makes a mistake, and then, oops, he catches it later, and he puts the correction in the margin. Well, manuscripts always from antiquity have these corrections. And then a later scribe makes a copy, and he sees the corrections, and maybe he thinks, well, wait a minute, we don't need a correction here, or it's the wrong correction. So you get a little bit of confusion in the manuscript tradition. However, there's no reason to despair We have so many manuscripts, we can compare them, because a scribe who makes a mistake in this particular verse, on that particular page, well, no other scribe will make that mistake. He alone did that. And so if we have multiple copies, we can compare them, and we can tell which ones are the mistakes, 
and what are the original readings. And that's why uh, scholars uh, who aren't sensationalists but sober scholars say, look, we've got the text. It's 99% exactly the way it was originally written. And therefore, when we read it and we study it and, and what we are supposed to believe and we develop our theology, we have confidence that we really do have the text uh, virtually identical to the way the original authors wrote it. And that's just because we have so many manuscripts, not only in the original Greek language, but the early translation like Latin. So that's why uh, I and most scholars are very confident. You mentioned the books of the Old Testament. We'll talk about the New Testament and Jesus specifically a little bit more in the second segment. But there are books that are mentioned. I'm reading the Old Testament again in a devotional that I'm going through this year. And there are many books that are mentioned in the Old Testament that are not in our Bible. The book of Jasher or would Hebrew Yasher and the book of Edo and the book of Enoch, to name a few. Why aren't those in our Bible? What, what's the point of those books? Where did they go? What happened to them? Why aren't they part of our scripture? Well, that's a great question. In fact, I, I love it when that question is raised because it helps us understand what the Bible in fact is. I said it's a library. Well, that was very true for the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament grows out of what would have been the royal library, the official library. And so there were prophecies, visions, chronicles, accounts, histories, records, and so on. By the way, this was very common. It wasn't just Israel doing that. It wasn't just Jerusalem. But every kingdom, every capital city, uh, every monarch had his library. And so, um, so when these uh, official versions, you might say the sacred versions, were, were written down, uh, the scribe would let the reader know. Now, by the way, you can get more detail if you want in the book of Jasher. You can find out more about this if you want, if you you read the prophecies of Edo. And so it's, it's really what you're talking about are footnotes. And so the sources are being cited here and there, and it'd be wonderful if we were ever able to recover one of those lost works. And I think it's theoretically a possibility. It's unlikely, but it's a possibility that someday something might turn up. But what happened was uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, that library was destroyed. And so we're actually very fortunate that we have these 39 books. Now, some of them, of course, were written after the Babylonian destruction, but the uh, Israel's royal library was destroyed. And so the book of Jasher, the prophecies of, and visions of Edo and some of these other people, and there are several other writings, they are, they're long gone, and that's what happened to them. And so the copies that would have been on the shelves uh, in the library were simply destroyed. But the, the, the texts that were considered especially sacred uh, were preserved, and people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others would have gathered up scrolls and would have held on to them. And of course, there were still some Israelites living in Israel after the Babylonian captivity. They would have preserved whatever they had. And, and that's why we do have an Old Testament. But it, in fact, is the surviving remnant 
of what would have been a larger library. Well, this is fabulous. And one thing people often overlook is that we're not talking just about manuscripts, but there's a lot of other history as well. And one thing in your book is this area of archaeology. You have lots of photos. And just so people are clear, this is not a small devotion. We're talking about 575 pages of some of the best information supporting the New Testament and the life of Jesus. Talk briefly before we go to our break about the role of archaeology in supporting the Bible. Well, that's a good question, and that's one of the reasons why I and so many people have confidence, because if the biblical narratives never matched up with geography or topography or archaeological discoveries, then we'd really wonder what's going on. (laughs) But uh, it's not that way. What happens is the archaeologists have so much confidence in these old biblical records, they know where to dig. And then they they know how to understand what they dig up better because of the biblical record. And so you have this correlation between the sacred text on the one hand and the actual physical remains that, that have been unearthed that you can go see now in the museum. And by the way, I'll tell you right now, what you see in the museum is only a fraction of what's been dug up. I have gone into the warehouses and they're stacked from the floor to a very high ceiling. They're just crammed with artifacts that have been unearthed from antiquity. And in the one big warehouse about 15 miles from Jerusalem, where I I had the chance to visit one time, the, the, the warehouse was filled, and there were piles of artifacts in the parking lot. And so when you go to the museum and you see that stuff, you think, wow, that is really neat. Look at those inscriptions. Look at that. Look at this. There's so much of it, you're just looking at a fraction of what's been uncovered. And what's staggering is what has been uncovered is only a fraction of what is out there still to be dug up. And what we find is what we dig up shows that the biblical narratives are, in fact, accurate. Well, that's amazing. And we have to take a quick break. Stay with us for more on A View from the Wall. From I Am a Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am a Watchman Minute. When sharing in a Bible study at a prison, I noticed a man become uneasy the more we talked about forgiveness. In anger, he raised his voice and presented many reasons he thought God would not or should not forgive. Then suddenly, the hostile man grew quiet, put his head down, and whispered, But I killed a man. I tell you, I was not prepared for that, but I saw it was more of a question than a statement. He questioned whether or not he could be forgiven. When I shared that Jesus can forgive every sin, he cried. He believed. He received God's forgiveness, and you can too. Be prepared for the return of the Lord by believing in Jesus, confessing your sins to Jesus, and committing to live for Jesus. Be bold. Be faithful. Be a watchman. I am a watchman.com. As we continue our conversation with Dr. Craig Evans in his new book, Jesus in the Manuscripts, we want to specifically address some of the key topics about the New Testament that you may have as you're listening today. Dr. Evans, as you cover the life of Jesus as a person and answer some of the tough questions, you run into these issues in academics about the historical Jesus. Talk a little bit about some of these issues. We hear things about him being married or other myths that are out there. Uh, talk about that for a moment. Huh. Yeah, of course, this comes up all the time. 
And uh, there's a disconnect between scholars uh, who do serious work, and most of that work uh, is pretty much on the map and done right. Uh, not all of it, but most of it is is pretty good. And uh, you know, and we and we challenge each other, and we 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 wrestle over this or that, and, and interpreting a passage, or perhaps understanding a, a recent archaeological find and what light it sheds on the text. But but the disconnect comes with the popular writing. And out of the blue, somebody makes a claim that's outlandish, uh, new evidence, a new document, a new something or other that proves that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, or that they had children, or or Jesus was a magician, and he traveled somewhere, maybe to India, and learned how to meditate. And you, you run into this stuff and think, where is this coming from? And part of the problem is that the we who are uh, professionally trained, we're academics, we're professors, we have other things to do. And the book we're talking about, my book, Jesus the Manuscripts, that took years to write. I never would have gotten it written had I responded to every book that came out by Dan Brown, every Da Vinci Code, every Holy Blood, Holy Grail book that came along. That's all I'd be doing. And so what scholars end up doing is we ignore the silly stuff. And I understand that, but I also at the same time challenge scholars, including myself, we can't ignore it. We do have to respond to some of it. Otherwise, the general reading public, and that includes people in the church who ought to know better, they're going to be confused by that. And I can remember standing in line uh, at a you know security line at an airport a number of years ago when the Da Vinci Code was going wild, and this fellow had the Da Vinci Code under his arm. And, uh, he, he, you know, he saw me looking at the book and he looked at me and he said, you know, I've gone to church for years and I never remember my pastor telling me that Jesus was married. Oh, no. <laughs> and I had to tell him, well, he didn't tell, he, he didn't say anything about Jesus being married because Jesus wasn't married. <laughs> and this guy, well, well, then, you know, and he's pointing to Dan Brown's book. Well, then what's he talking about? <laughs> and you can imagine we had a little bit of a conversation while we were in line. And so that's part of the problem in the popular setting and publishers, of course, they'll publish anything if they think it'll sell. You get this screwball stuff and it does not reflect sober scholarship. So that is a big part of the problem. Those are words to live by. I, I'm writing that down. I'm going to post it on my wall. Ignore the silly stuff. That 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 just covers most of Bible prophecy weirdness out there. Um, let me let me switch gears for a second. One of the things that you wrote about was specifically talking about the Gospels. That you believe the Gospels were written for Christians. You also talk about the what you call the Jewish Gospels. Talk about the differences between those two and and why they're important to us today. Well, the uh, Gospels in the New Testament were the first ones written, but they weren't the only ones written. Uh, and so uh, once it caught on, and that's probably by the end of the first century, these Gospels are circulating, Paul's letters are circulating, other writings are circulating, and of course the Apostles now are no longer with us. And so <clears throat> I think by the time we get to the beginning of the second century, there's the realization that authority in the Church is more and more the written word and not simply the spoken word, because the original speakers, the proclaimers of Jesus' teaching, of his death, his resurrection, those original eyewitnesses and proclaimers aren't with us anymore. And so what we have left behind is their voice written down. 
And so I think the, the written story became very important. And there were some groups emerging. They weren't necessarily happy with the older Gospels. And that's why in the second century, we start getting a whole bunch of new Gospels. And the Jewish Gospels, uh, I mean, you know, the New Testament Gospels are Jewish also, with the possible exception of Luke, who probably uh, was a Gentile, maybe a God-fearer. But uh, Matthew and Mark and John were written by Jewish disciples of Jesus. But we're talking about with the Jewish Gospels, something that's a little bit different. The Christology is a little lower. Uh, the law is, uh, the Jewish law is more highly respected, or at least protected from the idea that maybe it's passe. And so you get a little bit of a difference, but I actually don't think the difference was that great because what the church fathers uh, retain are quotations from these Jewish gospels where they're only different and there's not that much. And so that's one, you know, and it's, it's the Gnostic gospels that really caused the church fathers in the second century to become concerned because in those Gospels, the Jewishness of Jesus was being denied, the relevance of Israel in the Old Testament being denied, and that was a that was moving in a direction that was totally unacceptable uh, for the early Church. And then more Gospels were written, and on it went right on into the third century, which is why the Church at some point had to say, "Look, we have to make it really clear what we regard." as holy scripture that should be read in the church and this other stuff should not be read. Well, those are powerful insights. One thing people are concerned about today a lot of times are looking back to what that first generation of Christians was like. Uh, you think of Acts 2 where it talks about they were together and had everything in common. And as we look at their teachings, there was this small window of time between when Jesus ministered on earth and when the manuscripts were written. And people are sometimes concerned, how do we know that we have the teachings that they had during that time? And 1 Corinthians 15 plays into this as well with Paul and the gospel he received. Talk a little bit about that message, if you would. Well, yeah, that's a very good passage to go to. Uh, Paul talks about what he received. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, of course, it's the essence of the gospel, the good news, namely that Jesus died for our sins. He was placed in a tomb. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised up, which fulfilled Scripture. And this predates Paul. And Paul became a convert we think, one or maybe two years after the church had begun. So the church was in its infancy, and Paul, uh, when he becomes converted, already there's already a rock-solid, crystallized expression of the gospel, what we call a creed, a credo, what I believe. And, uh, and he, so he quotes it in First Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 15. He quotes it word for word. Of course, it ends with, Jesus appeared to Simon Peter, he appeared to James, he appeared to the apostles, the eleven, appeared to me, last of all, appeared to 500 people at one time. And so Paul is aware of all that, and this is solid, and it's only a year or so after uh, Easter. And the important thing about that is, in other words, it hasn't been years, decades, a century or two, where myths could develop, legends could develop, and, and stuff people were talking about that nobody can remember anymore, or there are no eyewitnesses anymore. It's just too early. And so Paul's testimony is powerful, and it shows that uh, the, the gospel proclamation was solid, well-fixed, and Paul, who opposed the church until he encountered the risen Jesus, 
you know, there it is. The gospel's already there. They're not inventing it, trying to figure it out. They already know what they believe from the get-go. Well, if you're listening, this is such an important insight because it really takes away that whole theory that uh, critics sometimes have that there is this period where legend developed regarding what took place in the early church. This was just within a first year or two after the events took place themselves. So this is very exciting. We have more in our next segment. Stick with us here on A View from the Wall. Jesus is coming again in an event known as the Rapture. You may be ready, but are your friends and family spiritually prepared for the coming of the Lord? We've created a new resource to help you help them. It's called the Rapture Kit. Rapture Kits are designed to help believers reach out to those lost before the Rapture and provide spiritual and practical information for those still here afterwards. Included in the Rapture Kit is a wealth of information on what the Rapture is and how to prepare for what is to come. The Rapture Kit also includes several Bibles, eBooks, audio and video sermons on prophecy, apologetics, the Christian walk and discipleship material, all preloaded on a 32 gigabyte flash drive. Warn the lost about the coming Rapture and help individuals in the post-Rapture world be drawn to Christ, equipping them to become the next generation of Christ followers and ministry leaders. Learn more and order at rapturekit.org. Welcome back to A View from the Wall. In our final segment today with Dr. Craig Evans, we want to talk a little bit about the applications from what we've discussed today and how we can respond in these last days. And Dr. Evans, we believe Christians need to take a 1 Peter 3.15 approach to the Bible. It's the verse that tells us to always be ready to give an answer. And you talk about that from the context of what's called textual criticism, evaluating the manuscripts. Uh, Talk some about what this means for us today as believers. Well, I don't expect uh, every Christian to become a textual critic or every Christian in the church today to learn Greek and to be able to talk about the manuscripts and everything the way a scholar would. But I don't think it's too much to ask every Christian to learn some basic facts and, and not be fooled by people who say the silliest things. And if somebody says something like, well, you know, I've heard that the Bible's unreliable, or I heard that nobody really knows how the original text read, what you can say, and you don't have to know Greek to say this, you can say, well, my understanding from the experts is that we have a lot of very old manuscripts, they are of high quality, and we do know what the original text said. And that's all you have to say. The texts, we have them, you know, this, it's not like the Book of Mormon, and I'm not trying to beat up on, on my Mormon friends. Uh, I've, I, I know some Mormon uh, scholars, and, you know, but they've got a problem. They do not have the Book of Mormon in its original language, and that's because it didn't exist. They have an English version that Joseph Smith wrote 180, 90 years ago, but they don't have any original text. Can you imagine if that's the way it was with the Bible? If we had to say, you know what, we think the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but we don't know because we don't have any text, or we think the New Testament was written in Greek, but we're not sure, it's just an educated guess because we have no manuscripts. But as a matter of fact, we do. We have several thousand manuscripts for the New Testament. We have fragments of some of the Gospels and Paul's letters dating to the second century. That's very old. That goes way back. 
uh, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we jumped back with the Old Testament manuscripts in Hebrew a thousand years and found the text was still the same. And so we have manuscripts for both Testaments. We have old ones, numerous manuscripts. They're good quality. So that's why I say we have every reason to believe that the text has been carefully and faithfully preserved. And that's what they did. You know, when a, when a scribe was hired to make a copy, he wasn't hired to be creative. He was hired to be accurate. And some of these scribes, this will come as a surprise to to our audience, but some of these scribes that made copies of the New Testament, they were professional scribes. They were not necessarily Christians. They had no motivation to make any changes whatsoever. They were paid, and they and if you were a good scribe, an accurate scribe, you were paid more. And so they made accurate copies. They had no motivation to change things, to portray Jesus differently, to alter the doctrine. They didn't know what eventually would become orthodox. They didn't even know what would end up in a New Testament. They were hired to make accurate copies, and that's what they did. Well, that's such a great response. And as we wrap up today, we want to help our listeners who consider themselves watchmen or watchwomen in these last days. They want to warn and watch and witness and finish well. Take a moment to encourage those who are listening today with how they can use this information in their walk with God and in sharing it with others. Well, you know, I think what we need are believers who exhort a world that's filled with unbelief, nihilism, and foolishness, a world increasingly that's lost its way, to point them back to the God of the Bible, point them back to the gospel. Instead of making predictions about the second coming or saying something about it's going to happen next year or, you know, or this kind of thing, but what we got to do is proclaim in the true sense of prophecy, speak forth the Word of God and tell people, you got to get back to Scripture, you got to get back to doing it God's way, because if you're doing it this other way, you're bringing harm on yourself, uh, and you know, you're making a mess of things. So I, I think we need to be prophetic in that sense. As we wrap up today, Dr. Evans, we want to thank you for being with us. Go to craigaevans.com. We will have that at iamawatchman.com, where you may be listening to this right now. And you can also go there to iamawatchman.com to download a copy of today's episode, to share some of our past episodes, and to get free resources to help you in your spiritual journey. We want to thank you again for being with us and encourage you to join us here next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.